Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A former Prime Minister finds himself accused of using his political connections to lobby ministers on behalf of a financial services company. The current occupant of 10 Downing Street is facing questions over whether or not his private life collided with decisions that he took during his time as Mayor of London. These are questions of access, of standards in public life, of ethics, of conflicts of interest. We're going to put the rules and whether they're working in the spotlight. We're then going to head to Scotland and look at how an independent Scotland, if that ever came about, could rejoin the EU. How would that work? How long might it take? And what would it mean for the UK? We've got a new report out which explores all these questions and its authors join us later in the show. I'm joined throughout today's podcast by Gabriel Pogrand, Whitehall correspondent at the Sunday Times. Gabriel, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to be with you all. Great. And we also have with us Hannah White, IFG Deputy Director and a former Secretary on the Committee on Standards in Public Life. She joins us now. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bronwyn. We also have Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow and a former advisor to Theresa May. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Bronwyn. Great to have you all with us. Well, let's start with this question of what politicians should or should not should not be doing. And the question's about David Cameron and Boris Johnson. David Cameron is embroiled in something now known as the Greensill saga. Giles, you've been keeping a really close eye on this. As succinctly as possible, which may not be possible, uh, what is going on? Okay, um, I'll try and do this in one minute. Um, Greensill, Lex Greensill is a former banker who became well known to people around Whitehall in the early 2010s, as you can read in Gabriel's excellent coverage at the Sunday Times. This was at a time when we, we were all very worried about finance to business. So, in fact, everyone in Whitehall was reaching out to anyone who might have an answer to the way banks were bringing away loans and, and, and not allowing companies finance they needed to grow or survive. And Lex Greenshill was, and I think I only remember one meeting with him, I've got no mental image at all, but he was one of the people saying, hey, I've got an answer, which is supply chain finance. Now, as we can find out from the journalism, uh, he, it turns out he was in Downing Street semi-permanently with his own business cards, acting as a um, with, as an advisor and trying to get this whole idea of supply chain finance going. And what oh, is and, 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 Giles, let me just stop with a really basic example of, of a company needing supply chain finance. So supposing it's a company selling something to the NHS, waiting to get paid, how would Greensill step in? Okay, so suppose you have a big buyer of, of goods or services like the NHS or a big company, and it pays hundreds of suppliers. And normally what it would do is say, I'm going to pay you in 90 days or 180 days. Now, the people who are meant to receive that money, who are in a sense lending to the bigger company, are normally cash constrained. They really need their money to keep their business turning around. So the supply chain finance company comes to them and says, look, I'm going to pay you immediately, which is what you want, slightly less than you are owed, but that way your debt is immediately fulfilled and you have your cash and the big company or the NHS will owe me instead. And that debt I'm going to package and sell to some other interest in the city who wants exposure to a big company like that and wants to make a return in a pension fund or something. So it shifts around the exposures. Yeah, so it sounds great. Um, this is why uh, Lex Greensill ended up with a desk in the Cabinet Office and a business card saying he was an advisor to the Prime Minister. What happened then with David Cameron? Well, OK, fast forward a little while. Lex Greensill has um, set up his own company to do this. It seems to be growing really, really fast. Billions and billions of finance offered to small businesses of every kind around the world, often in the commodities business, coal or steel or so forth. And David Cameron in 2018 is offered the opportunity to be an advisor to Greensill. 
fast-growing company, apparently very techy, so exciting and fun. So he he takes it up and apparently has a big enough equity stake that he sell, t- says to some of his friends that it might be worth $60 million. Anyway, um, then in, in the year 2020, problems start emerging with a lot of the loan exposures that Greensill has. In fact, some of them were coming out earlier. They seem to have a lot of exposure to one big steel interest, um, Sanjeev Gupta, who's bought a lot of the steel assets in the UK. But various um, debts go sour. Insurance that is offered on some of the investments to, to make the whole financial merry-go-round work gets withdrawn. Finance, they try to raise People look at the company and go, I don't think I really want to, even though SoftBank, a big Japanese investor, put in one and a half billion. Eventually, they have to file for administration. And what seemed to be a very valuable, fast-growing fintech company turns out to be exposed to all sorts of bad debts and unable to pay back the money. And the steel interests it's been financing look like they might now be in trouble and not able to survive without a further injection of finance. A very complicated story. Well, and, and and the point about David Cameron is, is that he was lobbying on behalf of this company yes. that has now gone very wobbly, but trying to get government support, coronavirus support for this company and ringing up the Chancellor and so on. Yes. I mean, as you will all remember, about a year ago, the Treasury at speed was developing all sorts of different financial packages to help companies that were basically going to go bust because of the coronavirus economic crisis. Um, and he was lobbying to say, well, uh, this company in particular really needs some. He was turned down by the Treasury after quite a long hearing. He clearly just didn't like the look of what they were being asked to lend to. Did he get some support for Greensill, though? Well, I don't think, I'm not sure whether it's fair to say that David Cameron did. There were very, lots of varieties of loans on offer. There was one called the CL Bills, which is the Coronavirus Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme. And they, I believe, were allowed chunks of that, although there was a, a limit put on it by the Treasury. It would normally have been £200 million and it was 50. But there are so many different companies in the green cell empire, I don't know what the total exposure was. But yes, they did get some guaranteed money, but you can't say that it was because of David Cameron. That's an important distinction. All right, Giles, yeah. thanks for that, that clarification, which I made uh, stretch out to more than a minute because I think we want some of the detail there. Gabriel, you wrote a terrific Sunday Times account, which Giles has just referred to. What to you is the most important point in all this? I think that, um, thank you, by the way, and I think, I mean, there are so, it's such a many headed hydra of a story. I mean, it kind of needs to be disaggregated because it moves in various phases. Phase one, this relatively unknown young banker in his mid 30s arrives in Whitehall, seemingly with the benediction of Jeremy Hayward, then the permanent secretary at number 10, later the cabinet secretary, manages to worm his way into the heart of government. And it is there that he, Number one, um, as Giles has alluded to, starts hawking around uh, various supply chain finance schemes. Most departments, by the way, we're going to talk about the checks and balances in the civil service and propriety and standards in public life. We, we should say he went to 11 government departments ranging from the MOD to DEFRA. Most of them told him where to go. It was only, um, it seems, with the help of Hayward and various other officials in and around the cabinet office that he managed to secure a scheme to finance NHS pharmacies along the lines outlined by Giles in terms of accelerating payment. But I think there are there are big, big questions about how it was that as somebody who had only just left Citigroup, 
major Wall Street bank where he'd specialize in this product, you know, ha- having just left that bank and set up his own business, how was it that this guy managed to inveigle his way into the system? And moreover, as has now been reported, procure a seemingly legitimate government business card, secure unfettered access to various Whitehall departments, set up a scheme. And uh, then uh, who was it that went on to operate this scheme and take a cut of the payments in question? It was firstly his former employer, Citigroup. And secondly, in 2018, he himself took over the scheme. Um, Greensill Capital over the last couple of years, up until the scheme's nationalisation this month, um, or rather last month, because we're speaking on the 1st of April, they managed uh, they, they process um, you know, £1.8 billion worth of payments. So there are big questions about how he penetrated the civil service. And obviously, some of these relate to a bygone era. And back to the present day, you know, the, the questions which are more recent are, in the context of uh, his time in Whitehall, what were the circumstances under which he hired David Cameron? What is their What was their relationship during his time in the cabinet office? And for, perhaps separately from all of that, what exactly is it that Cameron has done to lobby on behalf of the company? Because it was clear that a lot of these loans were turning toxic. Um, supply chain finance is meant to be, you know, a pretty solid, safe investment, almost like a government bond that's kind of guaranteed repayment at the end and fair, you know, fairly slender margins. All these loans start turning toxic, insurers start withdrawing support, and Cameron seems to be the most zealous and energetic lobbyist. I mean, to text the serving chancellor of the Exchequer not to mention, uh, as, as I've reported alongside those texts, to get in touch with the Treasury. I mean, there are big questions about how we govern uh, the role of former prime ministers. Which we're going to come on to. But, Gabriel, I'm really interested in the way you put it, because you, you've spent, um, you, you've put quite a bit of weight here, which is really interesting, on the judgments of government itself, even before we get on to the David Cameron question, yeah. um, that why government and government officials, including the cabinet secretary, um, the, the, the late Jeremy Hayward, thought that this was a business that they wanted to take into the very heart of government and get it to 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 um, make things uh, work more easily in, in procurement and supply and, and so on. So a whole stack of questions there about judgment, whether government uh, understood a complex financial financial business, as you said, actually should have been one um, of, of low risk, but was under the surface something uh, rather riskier. Why it brought it in, uh, why people brought um, it into the heart of the cabinet office and stuff. And then we've got the questions about about David Cameron. Does it does it seem to you that it really falls in those two parts and that there are things for all the um, attention going on the David Cameron bit, there are separate bit, questions about government? That's right. I, I think I think that it, it, it's, it's clearly the case that I mean, there's a long arc to this story starting in 2010, and it continues into the present day, but they probably fit into those two themes, yes. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Well, Hannah, take us into the some of the detail of, of David Cameron, Prime Minister now out of office, and the rules that govern what people in public life can and can't do. I mean, according to these rules, has he done anything wrong? No, and that's quite important to say. So there is a uh, uh, many varied, overlapping, and I would say fairly poorly understood landscape of ethical standards bodies, uh, which govern what ministers, what civil servants can do. And indeed, for some period of time, what people who leave public life can do. But there is no rule that, that Cameron has broken. There is a regulator uh, which looks at lobbyists who, who lobby government and 
people who are consultants to firms and who lobby government have to register with that with that office and have to say when they're undertaking lobbying activity. But if a lobbyist is employed by a company, as Cameron was in this case, he was employed by Greensill, there's no requirement to register um, and there's no requirement to to say what you've been doing. So he didn't he didn't break any rule there, nor did he break any rule around declaring taking on this job in the first place. There is a, a body within government, ACOBA, which is uh, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, which takes a look at jobs which former senior civil servants and ministers plan to take on within the first two years after leaving office. But Cameron took this job after more than two years after leaving office. So he didn't have to declare that to ACOBA. So there was there was no wrongdoing there either. So no breach of the rules. Why are people so uncomfortable with this? I think it's because people question his judgment, really. Cameron clearly is one of the most famous politicians in the UK. He's extremely well known. And there's a, a risk that, you know, it's it's not just about the rules. It should also be about ethical principles. And and I think there's a risk to perceptions of politicians, perceptions of the role of business in, in government, all these questions which were raised by Gabriel in his piece, and which will be now concerning members of the public because of what Cameron has chosen to do relatively soon after leaving office to take up this role, potentially, you know, to be paid for it at, at, at the very least, and, and people just feeling a little bit uncomfortable that that, that that isn't an appropriate thing to do because of the qu- questions it raises um, in the public uh, mind. All right. So th- thanks for that. Let's expand this to the current occupant of, of number 10, because Boris Johnson's private life has been back in the headlines, not for the first time. Do the public care? Gabriel, what, what do you think? Should people care about his relationship with Jennifer Arcuri, the American businesswoman? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I personally uh, would want a country in which we judge politicians for their private lives um, per se. The critical issue is when one's private circumstances cloud or affect uh, the judgments and decisions and investments which individuals and authorities make on our collective behalves. And um, I was part of the Sunday Times team that worked on the Arcuri story initially and uh, obviously now um, more than a year uh, well, well, more than a year after the fact, she has finally disclosed what we all knew, which is that they were having an extramarital affair. I, I don't know if. Well, I, no, uh, I think I think you have to say she's claimed, and we don't. You know, we weren't in the room, so you know. Was, um, <laughs> yeah, mercifully, we weren't. What, what in the room. many had presumed, but um, you're 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 quite right. She she's merely asserted this, and we've not we've not heard from the PM himself, but. Um, should, should we care? Um, I, I don't think it's for journalists to moralise about what Boris Johnson does or doesn't allegedly do in his uh, marital home. But what matters is the fact that she then got a place on, for instance, a taxpayer funded trip to Tel Aviv. You know, her company got various government grants. We need to know that those decisions are executed in, in a way which is unfettered by an individual politician's lust or love interests. And this is the number of it, isn't it? That that as mayor, uh, he was in charge of giving out public money to support uh, companies. Her company got some. Uh, there's nothing illegal about that, but that his relationship with her, if there was one, wasn't wasn't disclosed. I mean, Giles, where would you put this? Yeah. If you, you look internationally, I mean, some countries would go absolutely spare about this. Others would barely blink. 
this one didn't really land, it seems to me, in British public opinion, um, whereas others have. I obviously find it frustrating as somebody who's been closer to the way policy has been made, that the public is so indifferent to so many things, including quite salacious things. And the reason why is this, it's, it's because the vast number of decisions that are made by politicians that affect all of us are made out of sight. You don't monitor what they're doing. You don't read about it in Hansard. You just get the personality of the politician interacting with the policy issue thousands of times. And so hints you get about their personal morality, their view of life, their conduct. I know and the British public are gloriously indifferent to whether somebody has got poor personal morality in their life or not. But to the degree to which it affects their political judgment that is going to come into play thousands of times a day um, on all sorts of different things, I think is important. And what I find, I mean, going back to the Cameron story, what has bothered me, I mean, isn't so much the stench of somebody trying to enrich themselves and using lobbying to to help, allegedly. It's more this the 2011 part, which is why I find the Sunday Times story so interesting. They, they were totally besotted with any external person who came in and said, hey, I've got an answer to your problem. It's technological and entrepreneurial. And that team around them were total suckers for it. And, and that really bothers me because these are, as Gabriel says, this is a low value, low margin business. These are difficult problems. A new fresh faced looking person coming and saying, I can solve it all and create a billion pound company ought to make you all skeptical. And it tells you something about that team around Cameron that they were so willing to fall for ideas that you really need to really kick the tires on and ask yourself questions. How are you making all of this money? And if they had asked those questions, maybe fewer people would have gone in trouble over the finance. Ditto for Johnson and giving out money for people going on business trips. You know, it just makes you worry that they don't care enough about whether things really work or not and are too easily suckered by charm and appearance instead. So, yeah, it is frustrating the public don't get it. And I wish the public cared more. But, you know, here we are in the Westminster bubble. We, we're the people who care the most. I do think there's a the, there's a, the opposite problem, though, because if, if what this case does and what the Alcuri case does and the Greensill case does is, is lead to the public feeling more suspicious about the presence of, of business people in government and politicians feeling more cautious about, you know, how to move civil servants in and out of the private sector and move, you know, interesting, useful people who in and out of government, then that's not good either. And, you know, there's no doubt that the government does need some some of this stuff injected, although I agree with you, Giles, that, you know, it doesn't seem as though it does seem as though that the, the team at the time were, were were somewhat credulous about what was what was on offer. I think Giles caught the, the culture of that um, desire to believe financial engineers were promising uh, really well. To me, though, that feels different from the, from the Boris Johnson example where you're talking about did, did someone uh you know allocate public money uh to someone they had a relationship with without without disclosing that which feels more like a, a breach of rule so let me ask you we're gonna have to this could go on for a long time uh and may go on for a long time but we need to draw this a bit together let me ask the three of you whether you think we need more rules or whether the blowtorch of opinion which um is at the moment turning on these things is enough to keep our politicians uh on the, on the straight and narrow uh hannah more rules or not I think morals is is always, you know, tempting, but it's also quite tricky because, you know, it's really hard to write rules that cover every situation. 
That's why we have principles. That's why we have in, in this country the Nolan principles of standards in public life. But unless you have sufficient transparency around po- what people are doing, actually, it, sometimes it's hard for those principles to weigh heavily in people's minds when they're making decisions. If they don't think that they're going to have to explain those decisions and that, that they're not going to be discussed in the newspapers, then they're less likely to give weight to them. So I think, you know, in, it, on balance, you know, principles in some ways are much more desirable because rules always have ways around them or, or holes between them. Um, but, but you need the transparency, too. One little extra rule, how about a bit longer before prime ministers, former prime ministers can lobby? Yes, I think, you know, I, I think two years is a very limited time. I think that the the ACABA, the Business Appointments Committee, definitely needs to be strengthened. It needs to be given an actual, that it has to be consulted rather than that that's just optional. And that the period, particularly for the highest profile politicians during which they have to be transparent about the the, the roles they're taking on, I think, you know, that should be extended. All right. We'll leave the definition of highest profile for another. Uh, no one knows who you are. Consolation. You can go and lobby. <laughs> Charles, do you, um, more rule? I, I agree with Hannah that what we need is more powers to produce the transparency and, and things like the independent commissioner on standards. It should be literally impossible for such a critical report as we saw around the Pretty Patel um, treatment of Philip Rutnam to happen and the Prime Minister just to be able to shrug. There should be more independent powers and transparency of the results from those powers. And then we can finally see whether public opinion really does care uh, because it's public opinion that is the ultimate arbiter on all of this. And Gabriel, what do you think? More rules or is the power of the press enough? So um, I think that um, I I briefly just wanted to say something on an earlier um, point. That is allowed. Is that allowed? Okay. I will answer the question as well, but I think that, um, it's important to state that this is not, you know, there's a sort of template of these corruption stories or alleged corruption stories of somebody from the private sector enters government and makes things happen for private gain. Um, there is there's some truth in that in relation to the Greensill affair. But I, I do think that it is distinct from, say, you know, Philip Rutnam versus Priti Patel or other instances in, of civil servants or statutory bodies being overlooked or undermined of late in that the one of the central themes here is that Cameron only gets involved later on and, and actually it's the most powerful civil servant in the country um, which is driving the Greensill agenda in Whitehall. Um, so I sort of wanted to make a note of that. And then in terms of, um, you, you said, is the power of the press enough? I mean, I think Alistair Campbell had a rule which was that if you're in the headlines for two weeks, then you probably ought to resign. It is uh, self-evident the government doesn't uh, happen to abide by that principle. And I think, you know, in the absence of that self-regulation, you then require external regulation. I mean, I think for all these scandals, a reasonable rule of thumb is, are the favours, is the access, you know, availed to certain people? Would that be available to everybody else? Well, we know that not everybody, uh, like Richard Desmond, for instance, gets to sit next to Robert Jenrick, a Tory fundraiser. We know that not uh, any ordinary banker gets to have a desk in Whitehall. And we know that not uh, any average MBA student from America in London gets to hitch her wagon to the Prime Minister, uh, to the Mayor of London's entourage as he goes around the world on trade missions. I think in these instances, if, if people have special access or special favours and uh, the politicians aren't willing to regulate themselves, then there need to be more concrete and clear rules governing their conduct. 
Okay. So thanks for that. Desmond, in that example, uh, the, the donor and generic, the, the minister, thanks for that. Well, we're going to have to leave that subject there. Uh, Hannah and Giles, thanks very much indeed for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Norman. Okay, let's turn our attention north of the border, or rather to the border itself, the Anglo-Scottish border, because that's the subject of a new report we've got out this week on what that border might look like if Scotland did manage to become independent, as the SNP wants, and then it looked to rejoin the EU. Two of the authors of that report, IFG Senior Fellow Akash Pound and IFG Senior Researcher Jess Sargent, join us now. Hi both. Hello. Hi Vormen. First things first, Akash, this is all about possible futures. If Scotland became independent, if it sought to rejoin the EU, why is this paper important now? Well, you're right. There are a couple of hypotheticals in there. But um, the reason why I think it's a, a, a big topical issue is that we're just five weeks away now from the uh, Scottish Parliament election, an election at which the question of uh, independence and whether Scotland and the Scottish Parliament should have the right to hold another referendum on independence is really at the centre of debate. The SNP has made it clear that should it win a majority, either by itself or with other pro-independence allies um, at Hollywood, it's going to pretty much immediately seek agreement with Westminster to hold a referendum. And if that's not forthcoming, then it's going to try to, to legislate using its existing powers uh, to try and hold a referendum. And, uh, you know, and, and we know that the SNP vision is one of independence in Europe. Um, that's been the, the party position for, 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 for some decades now. That is an, in, an independent Scotland, in, independent of the rest of the UK, but one that would be part of the EU. Yes, indeed. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has reiterated that just just last month that Scotland's future is in inside the European Union. She she published an article with that as the headline. It's clear that that is is the the, the SNP and the Scottish government's plan. But what the SNP has not done, and the, the reason therefore why we why we published this paper really, is explained how in this new pre- post Brexit world in which the UK is, of course, now outside of the single market and, and, and customs union. Could Scotland theoretically in future re-enter the EU without disrupting trade and relations on the island of Great Britain? OK, great. So, so thanks for making that clear. So, Jess, if um, Scotland were trying to rejoin the EU and the single market and, and customs union, what would that mean for the border with England? So if an independent Scotland rejoined the EU, that would basically make the Anglo-Scottish border the EU's external border. So all of those checks, processes and paperwork that are currently required on trade between Great Britain and the EU will be required on trade between Scotland and England and Wales. As we know, Northern Ireland has slightly different arrangements. So actually, you would see um, frictionless trade between Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, But between uh, Scotland and England and Wales, you'd have customs paperwork, have um, regulatory checks, um, potentially physically physical inspections of certain agri-food products on the border um, between Scotland and England. So you'd need infrastructure and essentially what we'd have there is a hard border. So although that would remove some of the burdens on Scottish businesses trading with the EU, rejoining the EU, it would create new burdens for businesses trading with the rest of the UK. 
And and that border that you're talking about, I mean, potentially quite an obstacle. We had Adam Price, the head of uh, Plaid Cymru, uh, which wants uh, is, is arguing for independence in Wales, acknowledging, uh, is in a podcast with us, that if Wales did become independent, he couldn't see Wales rejoining the EU for a very long time just because of the volume of trade with England and how interconnected that, that, that everything is across that border. But uh, Scotland seems to see it differently. Is that realistic? I think it's an issue that hasn't really been discussed much um, yet, because obviously in 2014, we were in a very different position um, in that the proposal was for Scotland to become independent and both the rest of the UK and Scotland to be in the EU. We also didn't have clarity on the UK and the EU's trading relationship um, until January. So we couldn't say for certain exactly what EU membership would mean for um, an independent Scotland and the Anglo-Scottish border. Um, So I think that conversation is, is still to come. And I think there's very difficult questions there. Um, for the Scottish government to answer. Um, And one thing we say in our paper is that they need to be very clear about the trade-offs, although there obviously might be some benefits to EU membership for Scotland in terms of removing some of those barriers created by Brexit, uh, particularly for places like the seafood industry in Scotland, who've been very hard hit, it would create new barriers to trade um, between Scotland and the rest of the UK, which would be difficult for businesses for whom that is their primary market. So I think a lot of discussion um, needs to be had on this particular issue if uh, independence is looking like it's going to be a serious prospect. Gabriel, take us into some of the politics of this. For a start, do you think the EU would want to have uh, Scotland as a member? So I read this fascinating report, which uh, Akash and Jess, I, uh, Jess, I thought I'd thought I'd say was uh, was was brilliantly uh, and lucidly written. I thought that um, you did say one thing in it, which is that there have been suggestions that there's a path back to EU membership for Scotland, and there are all kinds of um, known complications for that on an internal political level within uh, the EU. The sort of question surrounding whether uh, certain member states, Spain, for instance, would submit to a situation in which a um, secessionist movement is uh, granted independence. That's obviously a kind of problem in relation to uh, Catalonian independence movement. But that said, it is a different situation insofar as the UK has left. And so Scotland would be acceding to the EU. It's kind of a, 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 diff- a different uh, situation. And so notwithstanding the uh, internal complications on an EU level, the domestic politics on a UK level are fascinating. I mean, one of your core points is that the path back to, to EU membership for Scotland, which is being presented by the SNP as a prerequisite, um, runs through Westminster. And we just don't know yet how hardball Boris Johnson and the Tories want to play. You know, there are kind of varying approaches. One is to be kind of completely belligerent and obstruct um, SNP attempts to hold another independence referendum then there are those in number 10 who advocate slightly softer approach who appear to be personified at this moment in time by Michael Gove. Um, I, I suspect that we'll see you know, that policy crystallise into something slightly clearer after uh, the local elections next month. Well, it will all hang on how much support the SNP gets. And as we know, all the uh, arguments between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond and, and indeed uh, Salmond's new party, um, harder to predict than it seemed a couple of months ago. But just on this this point about the, the complexities of Scotland rejoining the EU, do you think the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon have been clear about this? I don't know that it's in their strategic interest to be particularly clear about it at this moment. I mean, I think... Marvellously put. No, it isn't at all. No, of course and, it isn't. <laughs> and, and, you know, Anas Sawa, um, the new Labour leader, I mean, has 
said that the SNP stops shouting about independence, start, start articulating in greater detail what it's likely to involve. Um, I, I think to just address your question, the answer is no, they, because it's not in their interests, they aren't at this stage setting out in black and white what the trade-offs involved in independence are likely to be. They're probably, in that respect, taking a leaf out of the book of, of vote leave. It doesn't necessarily make sense to be totally candid about some of the slightly more um, unedifying upshots of pursuing this course. Jess, is it just on the technicalities, is there any kind of membership that Scotland could aim for, membership of the EU, that would diminish some of these problems you've been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So in the paper, we explore um, a few different options for Scotland's future trading relationship with the EU. But ultimately, we kind of conclude that because the UK and the EU have a very loose trading relationship through the trade and cooperation agreement, there's always going to need to be a trade-off from an independent Scotland about whether you have a close relationship with the EU or with the UK. Um, So if you look at something like EEA membership, that would allow Scotland to opt out of certain EU programmes like the Euro and the Common Agricultural Policy and Schengen. Um, But if you remove the need for regulatory checks on goods traded with the EU, then you create the need for them um, with the rest of the UK. Similarly, Scotland could enter a customs union with the EU or the rest of the UK, it's unlikely it will be able to get any form of trading agreement that would allow both. So I think what we've got is something very similar to the problems we've seen over the protocol, in that checks and processes will need to take place somewhere. Um, It's just a question of of where you put the border. So ultimately, it is that trade-off between the EU and the UK that an independent Scotland would need to face. Brilliant. So Akash, take us forward to May the 7th. If the SNP has done very well, is this a live question? Well, I think absolutely, yes. I mean, it may be a bit later than May the 7th. We're not sure how quickly they're going to actually count the results this Good time. Point. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think really the key question about um, the result is, will there or will there not be a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament? If there's not, if the SNP falls short, perhaps because Alex Salmond's new Alba party take crucial votes away from them, then really this issue is 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 off the agenda because without a, without a majority at Hollywood for another independence referendum, then nothing else is going to happen. If there is a, referend, uh, a, a majority for that, well, then we know, I think, what the immediate next moves are going to be. The SNP will, will seek that authorisation for what's called a, a Section 30 order, so legislation that will be passed at Westminster to allow a second referendum to be held. And if that is not forthcoming, then they're going to try to legislate regardless. I mean, that's their that's their plan B, um, which we would then expect to end up in front of the Supreme Court, who would be asked to, to, to rule whether the Scottish Parliament does, under its existing powers, have the right to, to hold such a referendum. OK, Gabriel, just take us and just finally wrap this up for us. How big a deal are these May... Um, uh, sixth results whenever they come through for Boris Johnson, for Keir Starmer, for um, uh, for Scotland? I mean, it's sort of difficult to overstate their significance because of the fact that there are so many kind of electoral events taking place simultaneously. We're going to get the measure of Boris Johnson, whether the vaccine bounce is consummated by reality. We're going to get a sense as to whether Keir Starmer has reversed any of the damage done by um, successive Labour leaders to the party's foothold in its former heartlands. And we are going to get a sense, um, as as has been articulated far more eloquently 
than me um, as to how unstoppable the SNP is as it prosecutes a second referendum. So, uh, you know, I think that there's could be a kind of weird and to some extent paradoxical situation in which Boris Johnson, uh, and, and, and if, if the polling, by the way, is to be believed, this looks likely, Boris Johnson sort of cements conservative lead in certain areas in northern England and the Midlands, you know, for instance, preserving the West Midlands mayoralty, preserving Tees Valley, doing well in other sort of city metro mayor regions, um, and, and, you know, basically, you know, puts Keir Starmer into a really difficult position in terms of his leadership, but then also has to confront the uh, very ugly, thorny and awkward question of, well, what do you do about Scotland now? Because the pro-independence mandate is so overwhelming and um, obviously the answer is we'll have to see whether uh, the SNP live up to that. Okay, thanks for that. And I should say we'll be covering the prospects for the Welsh elections before Election Day. Let's end with some self-promotion. Akash, there's going to be a lot of IFG work on these elections coming out, isn't there? Yes, I mean, as, as, as Gabriel just mentioned, there are a lot of elect- electoral events taking place on the same day because the May 2020 elections were, were postponed, of course. We've had this unprecedented confluence of Scottish, Welsh, London, Metro Mayor, loads of local elections and course, one parliamentary by-election as well in Hartlepool. Um, so yes, I mean, we've been holding a series of events with uh, leading politicians from U- across the UK. You mentioned we had Adam Price on recently. We've got Mike Russell, the uh, SNP constitution minister, coming up soon. And then we are also producing a whole suite of content and analysis of all those elections and, and, and considering uh, what the results might mean for the future of, of devolution and the UK. Brilliant. Well, I'm really looking forward to all that. And I should mention it's our 100th edition. Many, many thanks to Sam McCrory, our communications director, who helped create this podcast. But my huge thanks in this one to Jess Sargent, Akash Pound, Giles Wilkes, Hannah White, and especially to Gabriel Pogrand. It's been really, really good to have you with us. If you all enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel, There are lots of great new episodes heading that way, including a look ahead to the G7 summit, an interview with Scotland's Minister for the Constitution, Michael Russell, and many other things. Who knows, we might just talk about how Scotland might rejoin the EU. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review and check out all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There's a lot to read and listen to there, including Akash and Jess's new report, and a great paper on the Green Homes Grant, De Bacle. That's it for this week. The rules on what Prime Ministers and ex-Prime Ministers can and can't do may be a little hazy, but at least the coronavirus rules are easing up for the rest of us. Have a great Easter, everyone.